Hi, guys. How you doing? Okay, cool. I think the last time I taught here was uh, six years ago. It was my last Sunday before I left staff to um, go do full-time music. And for the last six years, I've been serving as a, a volunteer, a lay elder. And uh, just the last couple of months, like March 1st, I went back on staff at Reality Ventura to help lead the elders and the staff and the team down there for an interim period of time. We don't know what that is, maybe a couple of years, as we transition toward eventual autonomy. So uh, stoked to be here with you guys today. And real quick, I want to apologize in advance for my cough. I have that nasty thing that's going around, a little post-nasal drip is all tickly. So if you hear me cough, I'm sorry, uh, but it is what it is. Let's pray. God, thank you that even as we just sang, that we're loved by you. You are a good father. And as a good father, you know exactly what we need. And so, Lord, we thank you that you will speak to us in a way that we need to be spoken to today. You will give us exactly what we need. And we want to do our part in opening our ears to hear all that you would have for us. And as we Look at this idea of forgiveness. We say like the disciples, Lord, give us faith. Give us faith to hear these things. Do your will. Do your good thing here. Our ears are open. Our eyes are open. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about forgiveness today. That's fun, right? Aren't you stoked you came to church today? We just finished up the Lord's Prayer last week. And uh, towards the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructs his followers to pray like this. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. We understand theologically that forgiveness of our sins is a once and for all thing, right? Like if you're born again, it is not a salvific requirement that we continually ask for forgiveness. God did it. It's done, it's forever, you're born again. But as we come to God, Jesus is instructing us that we ought to come to God in this manner. Like Britt said last week, when we come to God in prayer, God is wanting us to be thinking about forgiveness. He is wanting us to remember, wow, God has brought the blessing of forgiveness to those who are undeserving of it. Has anybody in here ever been on the receiving end of forgiveness, like you did something wrong, maybe just even were rude to your wife or whatever, and you, you come back and you say, baby, I'm so sorry the way I, I talked to you, and, and she offers you forgiveness, or your, your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend, somebody, anybody ever experienced the goodness of forgiveness? Okay, cool. For the other 200 people who have never experienced the goodness of forgiveness, it's a good thing. It is a right, good, it feels good, and it's feels good because it's right. It's part of the way that God designed the universe to work. Forgiveness is part of the way that God designed relationships to work. And part of who God is, is forgiveness. It's in his nature. But what's crazy is that we were created in the image of God. And this amazing, powerful attribute of God that we love to reap the benefits of, God has designed that, has written that, into our DNA. We all love it when we're recipients of it, right? But did you know that God has written it into us to be able to also give it? 
He has given us the capacity to forgive. And I'm just talking like on a human level. As human beings, I'm not even talking about being born again. I'm just talking about God creating humanity in our DNA. He has given us the ability to forgive somebody of a debt. He's also given us the ability to like lash out at somebody and fully judge them or bring justice too, right? And you're like, yeah, I like that part, man. But he's also given us the capacity to to let something go, to forgive. He's done that in us. And then for us today, as the followers of Jesus, those who do have the spirit of God, not only has God made us capable of forgiveness, he has also called us to forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ forgave you. To be forgiven means that he has released us from the debt that we owed. That's mercy, right? But then God takes it one step further and gives us grace on top of that mercy. Not only does he forgive our debt and take away our unrighteousness, but then in its place, he gives us Christ's righteousness. So we impute the account of Jesus with all of our sin, our mistakes, our missteps. And in turn, he gives us his righteousness. It's like taking all of our spiritual credit card debt, student loans, and hospital bills and dumping them into the account of Jesus. But then God says, hey, I'm not just going to leave your account debt free. I'm not... I'm not just going to leave it not in the, the red anymore. I'm going to make it in the black. And I'm, just not, I'm not going to make it just like a little bit in the black. I'm going to make it like you're rolling in the black. You're fully justified, righteous before God. Hebrews 10, 14 says that for by one sacrifice, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Perfected forever. That means that all of the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us. That is how we are forgiven. We don't have to wallow in our past sins. They've been done away with. God has removed them as far as the east is from the west. And God says, man, I don't, I don't hold that against you any longer. I don't hold that against you. I've done away with that. All the old things have passed away. And stop, hold on. Hold on, dude, stop looking at your phone. Hold on. Wait, that's what, that's what behold means. Stop, wait, hold on, listen to this. All of it has passed away. And behold, all things have been made brand new. That's the kind of forgiveness that God has given to us. But then Jesus doesn't just leave it there. As he has done throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't allow this to only be about my relationship with God. Everything we just talked about, that's my relationship with God. And honestly, that relationship is kind of easy, or at least it's simple. It's simple. It's, it's the relationship with, like, each other that gets complicated, right? The thing with God is pretty simple. It's like, man, God loves me with this everlasting love. And everything that he does in my life, even the hard stuff, he does because he loves me. And if I mess up, if I fail, God's like, I, I love you, man. I I paid for that. I bled and died for that. I don't have to wonder what God's thinking about me. I don't have to wonder uh, if how he's feeling about me. There's no manipulation. There's no deceit. There's nothing like passive aggressive about him. He's just like full of grace and full of truth. 
And now I respond to that love by loving him and by giving him my life. That's easy. Like I said, if I mess up, something goes wrong, I know that God's not holding it over my head or he's not going to like talk trash about me behind my back or he's not going to blackmail me with it. It's a simple relationship compared to the one with people. And honestly, I wish Jesus would just leave it there. I wish he would just leave it between me and God, but he doesn't. He calls us to something else also. He calls us to love our neighbor in the same way that he has loved us and to forgive those who have trespassed against us like he has forgiven us. Jesus doesn't expound on any part of the Lord's prayer except one, the forgiveness part. And so that's where we pick it up today in Matthew chapter six, verses 14 and 15. It says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Just sit on that for a second, especially that last part, because it's heavy. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's a pretty gnarly statement. And yet there have been several pretty gnarly statements in the Sermon on the Mount if you've been listening. Remember 522 and Jesus said, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Or 548, when Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. (laughs) So, like, what are we to do with statements like this? I mean, Obviously, it's impossible for anybody to live like that. But Jesus isn't being sarcastic. Like my mom used to say to us kids, there's six kids growing up around the dinner table. So my mom would be like, always, say what you mean, mean what you say, and don't say it mean. Right? Like that's what, that's what Jesus does. Like he, he means what he says. He says what he means. And usually unless it's to the Pharisees, he doesn't say it mean. So he's not, he's not being sarcastic. He's serious. But if he's serious and we are not perfect like the Father is perfect, then what do we do with this? Well, when we look at the whole Sermon on the Mount as one big sermon, it begins to make a whole lot more sense. The Sermon on the Mount is this. Jesus announcing how we enter the kingdom. And once we're in the kingdom, how we live as citizens of the kingdom. Jesus reveals how we enter the kingdom right off the bat in his theme statement at the very beginning. It's like his mantra. It's the main point of the whole deal. He says in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. In essence, we don't earn a place in the kingdom of God. It is given to us by grace. So we enter the kingdom of God by God's grace. And then once we are a part of the kingdom, we live out kingdom ideals in our lives as salt and light in the world. We've been brought in by grace, right? There's nothing that we could have done or can do to earn us a place in the kingdom. Somebody say amen. 
If you thought you got here, got into the kingdom because of something you did or because you were cute or because you like had a certain last name or because you like did something, that's not true, man. You came into the kingdom by God's grace. It was a gift. Grace means here's something you don't deserve. I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. Hey, bro, I got a Ferrari. I don't know you. Here you go. That's a gift of grace. You don't deserve it. I don't know. Wait, here you go. I'm going to give you this. That's how we came into, the God, into God's kingdom. We are not brought into the kingdom by our righteousness. But once we're in the kingdom, we are called to live righteously. And part of how we do that is by living according to God's standard. And what's the standard? Jesus says it, 548, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then Jesus illustrates that by saying, simply calling someone a fool makes you in danger of hell. And if you don't forgive people, you will not be forgiven. In other words, in God's kingdom, the standard is what it always has been. Be like God. But no matter how much I allow my new identity as a child of the king, as a citizen of the kingdom to sink in, no matter how much I endeavor to live by the power of the Holy Spirit according to the righteous standard that Jesus is talking about here, I'll never match up. I'll never do good enough to earn myself a place in the kingdom of God. And that's the point. We don't earn a place in God's kingdom by living righteously. We are given a place in God's kingdom by grace. Which brings us back to the whole theme statement of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, it means like, I got nothing. My spiritual self is like, there's nothing. I need you. Like, I need you to make me alive. Like, I'm jacked. I know I'm a sinner. I need you. And the whole deal, the whole, every time Jesus gives a command here, it's like, this is the standard, but it serves to push us back to that main point. You want to sum up the whole Sermon on the Mount, that's it. Does that make sense? Okay, because if it doesn't make sense, I'll give you Britt's email. You can email Britt, set up a meeting. He'll try to explain it to you. So as it pertains to forgiveness, though, as sons and daughters of the king, as citizens of the kingdom, how are we to live? What does it look like to forgive as our Father in heaven has forgiven us? In Luke 17, 3 to 5, Jesus says to the disciples, So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Then the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Can you remember any other time in scripture when the disciples said, Lord, give us more faith for that thing? There's nowhere else. That's it. All the like healing stuff Jesus did, casting out legions of demons, walking on water, making money come out of fish's mouths. The disciples never said, Lord, We, we need you to like, we, oh gosh, we need more faith to believe that that's possible. But when Jesus talks about forgiveness, they say, Lord, we need more of you to believe 
that that's possible and to be able to live like that and to act like that. It's hard work, man. Forgiveness, forgiving someone of a debt against you is hard work. It requires a deep supernatural empowering. I've had a year full of working through forgiveness. It's been hard, man. It's good. It's hard. I've learned a lot. But I'm going to be honest. When I, when I come up here to teach you about forgiveness, there's nothing like fun about that for me. Because there's nothing easy about forgiving people who have offended or hurt you in some way. But when I saw this passage of scripture coming in Matthew, I volunteered to do it because I didn't want to be selfish with the things that God had showed me. And because I think there's probably somebody in this room other than me who needs to hear these things. So there's a lot to say. Britt Brit will uh, probably do a part two next week, and then I'll be doing a, a part two, one and two in Ventura over the next couple weeks. So we're going to talk about four main points today. One, first one, we forgive because we are, become, sorry, because we have been forgiven. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Let's read Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. It says, You have heard the law that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is that for? What reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Like we said a minute ago, and as is the case throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, the standard is God, right here. Be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. We are to pattern our lives after the character of God. And so with forgiveness, what does it look like? Well, how does God forgive? First of all, God forgives sacrificially. Forgiveness always requires some kind of sacrifice. Jesus knew this, right? That's why when he was in the garden, sweating great drops of blood because of the stress he was experiencing, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup from me. He knew the cost of what he was about to do. And you know the story, man. They, they took him and they, they beat him. They whipped him with this cat of nine tails and glass and metal digging into his back and tearing off his flesh, no doubt, almost to the point of death right there. Then they attacked his character. And they mocked him as a person and hurled insults at him. Then they mocked and attacked his identity and demoted him to a criminal. And then they hung him on this cross and crucified him. And as if that wasn't enough, then Jesus took on the sin of the whole world. And for a moment in time, that perfect unity of the Trinity was broken. As the father had to neglect his son, as Jesus took on the weight of the sin of the whole world. 
That was the sacrifice that was required to satisfy the wrath of God. That was the price that had to be paid for the forgiveness of our sins. We'll talk about this more later, but forgiveness will always require us to sacrifice something. Some right, some entitlement, some resentment or grudge or comfort or pride. It will always require something of us as it did with the father when he sent his son and as it did with the son when he gave his life. Second way that God forgives is God forgives liberally. God doesn't choose which sins he will or will not forgive. God is not a respecter of persons and not prejudice in the sense like, oh, that dude, he real jacked up. I'm not, no, that guy, that guy doesn't get my forgiveness. He forgives liberally. He forgave the woman caught in adultery. When nobody else wanted to forgive her, when they were coming to stone this woman, he was like, no, I'm, I'm going to forgive this woman. The thief hanging next to him on the cross. The demonized man cutting himself in the caves. The rich dudes, the poor dudes. He even forgave the tax collectors, even the IRS. I'm not sure if there's a such thing as a worse sin, but you know the sins I'm talking about. I'm not talking about collecting taxes, but you know the sins I'm talking about, the ones that were like, yeah, man, but what about that? That, that thing's gnarly. Yeah, man, even that. Even that. And he here today with us forgives us of our sins. Even the hidden ones, even the ones that have hurt other people, even the ones that have hurt innocent other people. That's how powerful the cross is. God forgives us with liberality. He forgives us completely and with no prejudice. Now, there's certain things that seem unforgivable to me. But when I remember the cross and I remember the kindness of God toward me and I remember how God has forgiven me, I know that, okay, now I can forgive even those things that seem unforgivable. The other way that God forgives is God forgives permanently. Psalm 103, 10 through 12 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As far away from each other as you can get. Jeremiah 33 says that part of the new covenant that Christ would usher in would be this thing where God forgives them of their sins and then remembers them no more. You know what that means? That means that God isn't keeping some secret stash of dirt on you. He's not going to bring up some past sin and throw it in your face. He's not going to blackmail you with it or hold it over your head. You know who does that? We do that. You know who else does that? The devil does that. That's his job. That's his job to bring it back up. He's the accuser of the brethren. But God does not do that. To forgive us permanently doesn't mean that God forgives us, washes away our sins, and removes our debt from us. And then a few months down the road when we mess up, He's like, oh, no, I was just kidding, man. I'm going to start keeping a record of wrongs now. 
God's forgiveness is permanent. It's done. It's forever. The other way that God forgives is God forgives freely. This is, a, this, is a, this is good and it's hard as it pertains to us forgiving others. God's forgiveness is not contingent on us doing anything or performing in any certain way. That's hard even for us to receive like that kind of forgiveness from God because we're like, I gotta do something. I gotta do something. And God's like, I did it all. What do you, even your righteous acts are like filthy rags to me. What are you going to do? I did it all. Don't demote the work of Christ on the cross to being like something that needs something else added to it. There's nothing else to be done. With God, there's no strings attached. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. God doesn't wait for us to get our act together or for us to start performing properly to forgive us. He just does it because that's who he is. It is in his nature to love us with that kind of gracious generous love. Now, do we have to respond to God's forgiveness by repentance in order to reap the full benefits of forgiveness? Yeah, absolutely. But the point is, Jesus didn't wait around to see if we would repent before he did all that needed to be done for our sins to be forgiven. He offered forgiveness unconditionally and while we were still in our sin. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, before we repented. That's when he freely gave his life. That's how strong the love of God is. And so when it says in that passage, so love your enemies, he isn't just talking about simply doing loving things for them or putting on some fake happy face and giving somebody a a fake, polite, half-hearted hug when you see them. He's not talking about acting kindly or acting politely. He's talking about love. He's talking about the, allowing the love of God to influence and change the way that we think and feel and act toward our enemies. It's the kind of love that moved Jesus to lay down his life for his enemies while they were still in their sin. The kind of love that moved him to beg the Father to forgive these men who had just falsely accused him publicly humiliated him, verbally abused him. Anybody ever been verbally abused? Bullied him, made fun of him, physically beat him, and then publicly shamed him when they crucified him. And not only did these men not repent before Jesus died, but while they were in their sin, while they were murdering him, Jesus is doing the work that needs to be done to forgive them. That's crazy, man. And you might say, do people like that don't deserve to be forgiven? And you know what? You might be right. And there's people in my life and in your life that don't deserve to be forgiven. But you know what else? Before God, neither do I. And neither do you. 
We are all guilty, every one of us. But because of God's great mercy, because of his great love for us, he forgives us, forgives you and me. He forgives us freely, fully, forever, and completely. And because we have been forgiven like that, now we can forgive like that. I love this thing that John Piper said. He said, keep being more amazed that your wrongs are forgiven than that you were wronged. That's it, man. If we can live like that, we'll be a a big step forward. Now, there's some tension here, right? For like the the studious, deep thinker, maybe the like quasi, you know, theologian or whatever in the room. There's some tension. There's some tension here because Jesus said, if you do not forgive, then you will not be forgiven. But the tension is the whole New Testament teaches that God's forgiveness is not contingent on us doing anything. It is a gift. So which one is it? Well, I think it's kind of both. Remember that the law was given as a schoolmaster to push us to the cross, as a tutor to push us to the cross. Like, you're jacked up, dude. You need God here. And so when we look at, if you do not forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. You realize, dude, I'm, I'm guilty of that. that, that's, what it, that that's what it's supposed to be like. And the penalty should be, The penalty for me not forgiving, your father will not forgive you. I don't deserve to be forgiven. The penalty for my sin, death. Hell, right? Separation from God forever. Perish, all that. I don't deserve it. But that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. God's blessing has come to the people who didn't earn it. Didn't do anything to deserve it. Secondly, forgiveness is about me, not them. Forgiveness should not require a response or repentance. Forgiveness cannot be dependent on the offender responding in a certain way. Man, you could wait your whole life, honestly, and they might never respond in the way that you think is right. The way that you've been affected by stuff, man, even even if they repent, maybe, it's never gonna like undo that thing in you. And so we can't wait around and our, our, our forgiveness can't be contingent on them responding in some way or acknowledging their wrong or even making themselves available to discuss the issue with us. This is hard, man. This one is hard because it is in our nature to seek justice. It's part of being created in God's image that we seek justice when there has been a wrong. And if we can't get justice, then at least we want to wait for a repentant, humble apology. Like just one tear. Just give me one, dude. But remember... Forgive as your Father in heaven has forgiven you. How did our Father in heaven forgive us? Romans 5.10, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. The Father sent his son when we were in rebellion against God and totally unrepentant and maybe even in many cases totally unaware even of our sin. He didn't wait around 
until we were ready to repent. The main point of forgiveness is forgiveness. It's not about judging other, another person's intentions or their words or their actions. That's not my place. That's not your place. There were people in my life growing up that hurt me deeply. Honestly, I know for a fact that they loved me. I know for a fact that they didn't intend to like have some like malicious intent to harm me in some way. But they were a product of their environment growing up and their family life was toxic. And so as they were a part of raising me, they dumped out that toxin onto me. And honestly, they probably did the best job they could have done with the tools they had been given and with the cards that they had been dealt. So did they sin against me? I don't know, man. Was it intentional? No, I don't think so. But it happened. I was offended. Was it out of ignorance? Yeah, maybe. Is it my job to investigate and figure it out? No. Forgiveness means that God gets to judge all of that. The point is, I was offended. I took offense with things they did or said to me growing up, and they had a profound and in some ways harmful impact on my life. Some of those things may have even been done with a pure intention, but I took offense with them. And this is about me. Forgiveness is about me. It is my responsibility to deal with the offense in my heart. Were they in sin? I don't know. But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you what I do know. I do know that if I harbor bitterness and resentment in my heart, then I am now in sin. This isn't about the person who offended us or about itemizing every wrong thing that they have done and bringing them a ledger full of all of their sins against us. That's between them and God. This is about us. This is about us doing what we know is right in the eyes of God. Are they different now? Have they changed? Are they gonna change? It doesn't matter. What matters is that we're forgiving them and releasing them from every offense that we've held on to. And in the best case scenario, after we forgive, we get to have a heart to heart conversation with them and they respond and they repent and then it sets us on this course of reconciliation. That's awesome, man. I've been able to go through that process and begin that process with people in my life right now. That's beautiful. That's great. Thank God. But you know where that started? It didn't start with that heart-to-heart conversation. It started with me purposing in my heart. I'm releasing them. And my forgiveness is not contingent on them responding to my forgiveness in any way. And so when I sat down and had these heart-to-hearts, it was like, I don't expect anything from you. I don't need anything from you. I'm just offering to you what I have been given freely. And in a perfect world, every relationship is perfectly healed and reconciled and redeemed. But we don't live in a perfect world, right? So that also means then that forgiveness doesn't always bring reconciliation for a couple of reasons. One, the person who offended you may just may not be available to reconcile with. Like literally physically maybe not available. Like maybe they died or maybe they're alive still, but they're just not present. They're gone. 
you don't know how to contact them. Or maybe they are physically present, but they're not available to make themselves emotionally available to a conversation of this depth and this degree and this kind of like hard, heart-to-heart kind of talk. Or maybe reconciliation is just unwise or unsafe. It's important to note that while God does call us and will give us the strength to forgive every person who has wronged us, God does not call us to be in close relationship with every person who has wronged us. There's certain people in your life who just may be toxic to you. They corrupt you or they're agents of the enemy in your life or that relationship was maybe abusive in the past or it's dangerous for your family or if you or for your health or maybe it's an ex-spouse and it just wouldn't be wise. Or honestly, it could be as simple as, dude, we just don't get along. They don't, we're like oil and water. We just don't mix. It's not good for anybody. It's not fruitful for anybody when we're together. And that's all right, but that doesn't mean that we don't forgive them. It just means that forgiveness isn't always step one, release the resentment and bitterness. Step two, weekly talks at yogurt land or whatever, right? That's not always what that means. Sometimes it's just step one. Or reconciliation may not happen because reconciliation takes two to tango. Just like it is with God. God says, I did everything that needs to be done. Here I am, arms open wide. And then we got to respond to that love and say, God, yes, I'm I'm receiving that love. I'm receiving that forgiveness. So it is with us. We may offer willingly what we've been given. I'm freeing you your debt. I'm even willing to reconcile. And they're like, no, I don't don't want to. In that case, you just got to say, all right, Lord, I, I've done my part. That's, my job was to do that. Their job is, to, is between them and you. Like it is with me right now. Like my job is to preach this text as faithfully as I possibly can. Your job is to listen and do something with it. That's not my responsibility, right? That's not my, whatever you do with it, so it is with forgiveness. My job is to forgive. It's their job to respond, and that's between them and God. Now, forgiveness is also about me and not them in the sense that forgiveness is not about justice being served. Forgiveness is an issue of my heart. It's between me and God and the wrongs that they have done, they can take up with God because God is the judge, which brings us to the next point. Forgiveness means that God gets to judge. The Bible says that the foundation of God's throne are justice and truth. He has the final say. He is the judge. Forgiveness means that we get to give up our assumed right to be the judge, jury, or executioner. Tim Keller says, in order to forgive, not only do you have to forego being the executioner, you also revoke your right to judge the person. You cannot be the executioner. You cannot actively seek to bring about your own idea of justice or revenge. And you also revoke the right to be the judge, to pass sentence, and will the penalty or will revenge on the person, even if you do not carry it out. Bitterness is the inward condition which holds a person liable for sin. You say, I'm not bitter, bro. I I don't have unforgiveness you're still holding that thing over somebody's head, you haven't released that, 
Now, he's saying, now bitterness is the inward condition which holds a person liable for their sin. And it's a sacrifice, right? Forgiveness requires a sacrifice. And in order to forgive, we have to sacrifice the right to resent or hold a grudge. This is a hard one, man. All of this stuff. I tell you, man, I'm getting tired just talking about it. It's a lot of work. But you know what? Even if you could have revenge, even the gnarliest revenge or payback will never really heal us. But you know what can start the process of healing? Take a guess. Forgiveness. Forgiveness can start. Forgiveness can unlock the door to healing for your heart and your mind and your soul. And so we don't wait around until justice is served to do our part. We just do our part. And our part is forgiven. And we can let the judge, capital J, be the judge. Revelation 20, verses 12 and 13 says, Then I saw the dead, and there was the great and the small standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Psalm 9, 7 and 8 says, But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Someday Jesus will return. And he will judge everyone who should be judged. And those who God sees fit to judge in a certain way, God will judge in a certain way. And we just have to allow him to do that. You may have people in your life who have hurt you. And you may have never hurt people like the way that you have been hurt. Just like those men who were going to stone that woman caught in adultery. Like they may have not been adulterers, right? But what did Jesus say to them? Hey, he who is without sin. You cast the first stone. So, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. But only Jesus is without sin. So Jesus is the one who gets to cast the first stone. And every stone after that. So does that mean that every murder is going to be dealt with in the way that we see they should be dealt with? What about abusers, molesters, rapists? I don't know. I do know that I'm thankful that God has not dealt with me according to my sin. I do know that he didn't deal with the woman caught in adultery according to her sin. And we look at that and we're like, wow, you liberated that woman, Jesus. That's so beautiful. Thank you. But I do know that it's in his nature to be just. And... I know that it's in his nature to be merciful. And I know that it's in his nature to be right and to be good. And so I can trust him in that. I can can trust that he's going to be good 
and I can leave it in his hands. So then whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes over or takes the city. So beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Forgiveness is also freedom. It's the last point. Forgiveness is freedom. First of all, it's freedom for them. Now, I know some of you are like, freedom for them, man. I don't want nothing for them. Freedom sounds good, and I don't want good for them. Just hold, with, hold on. Like, bear with me just for a second. There is freedom for you when you release them. But forgiveness does mean that you free them, that you release them. You let go of the one that you were holding captive under the weight of your judgment. You no longer hold their sin over their head and hold that, that like noose around their neck just like waiting in your mind and in your heart. Why? Why don't we do that? Because God does not hold our sin over our head. He does not hold a noose around our neck like that. You free them from the electric chair. You like unstrap them in your heart from the electric chair and you let them out and you hand them over to the custody of God who is the righteous judge. Forgiveness is freedom also in the sense that it is freedom for yourself. When you hold someone captive in your mind and heart and refuse to release and forgive them, we are the ones who end up becoming the slave. We think we're not, but we are. But when we forgive, we release them, like I said, from that gallows pole, and then we're free to live our life not being trapped by what they have done to us or by letting what they have done control us. I'm gonna be honest, man. I've lived so much of my life trapped by the things that were done or said to me. I've let them control me. I've let them influence the way that I make decisions. I've let them manipulate the way that I think, the way that I approach and do relationships. But it is not God's plan for me that I would be under that kind of control and locked up in that kind of bondage. And I'm telling you right now that forgiveness holds the keys to unlock that, to set you free from that. Some of you guys here today, you're not holding someone else captive because of their sin against you. You're holding yourself captive. Some of you guys are like, hey man, I'm good actually. Like I'm going through the Rolodex in my head of every person in my life. And wow, by the grace of God, I have forgiven everybody. I, or I'm, a, I'm in, on the, in the process or whatever. But you, your sin, you won't let it go. You know what? I'm just gonna be honest and blunt and say, man, we don't have the right to do that. God, God died for that. God died for that. He forgave you and you can forgive yourself of that debt too. Forgiveness is also freedom and that it is freedom from Satan. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. 
for anger gives a foothold to the devil. This word foothold is the Greek word tapas. It means a geographical location, a place, like a, an actual like place. Like, well, I don't know, right here, where? Like a, a place. That's what Paul is saying right here. You know what happens when you hold on to anger? It turns into bitterness and resentment. And so Paul is saying, when you harbor bitterness, you give a geographical location to Satan in your life. Doesn't that sound cool? Right? Like, that sounds, right? You want that? I don't want that. I don't want that. I've been around people who have that. I don't like it. We have prayed for dozens of people over the years, like right here in this room, in those offices, in houses around these communities along the coastlands, who come to us because they're like, dude, there's a gnarly, demonic, like, oppression, attack, fear. I'm, like, hearing things. I'm getting woke up in the middle of the night, whatever, like, demonic stuff. And we go and we pray, and as we're praying, we feel like God's saying, man, there's this root of bitterness and unforgiveness there, and we bring it up, and it's there, and they acknowledge it. But because they can't release it, they're trapped forever in this bondage by the enemy and trapped forever in this demonic thing just because they won't let go of bitterness. I mean, it makes sense. It's what Paul said here, right? You know, there's also people in this room who are not experiencing all that God has for them in their life. And simply because you're holding on to resentment and bitterness. Some people in here, you know there's more to life. You see God moving in other people's lives and in this powerful way, and you want that. It's like this beautiful, profound thing. You want it. You see it. You pray for it. But no matter how loud you sing, how much you pray, how much you read your Bible, it's like there's this wall. God wants to tear down that wall, but you got to let go. It's like this was like between us, and God's like, dude, I, I want to like remove it. And you're like, no, nah, this is my thing. And he's like, you got to let go. He's not going to like pull it out and knock you over. I mean, sometimes he does, which is rad. Like that's a lot of grace. But he doesn't, he usually lets us, requires us to kind of be involved in the process. But you got to be ready, man. You got to be willing to surrender that bitterness and let that go. It's like Jesus is saying, let this go. And the enemy is like, whoa, 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 dude. You don't let that go. You know what they did? You know what they did? They don't get to just do whatever they want. And then you got to just let it go. That's not, how the, that's not how this works. That's the devil. Don't partner with that voice. That is the devil. The Lord is saying, if you've been offended, man, let that go. And you say, well, I, have the, I have the right, though. I have the right to resent them. I have the right to hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness because of what they did. It's called a justifiable resentment. And for our whole life, we're never really free to walk in all that God has for us because we justify that resentment. We're never really free. We're always slaves to something. As if the offense wasn't bad enough when it originally took place, then we end up holding on to it and allowing it to own a part of us forever. 
And we just end up carrying it forever for our whole life, just like this monkey right here. See this dude? He stuck his hand in there because it says in here, but free bananas. But you know what happens. You stick your hand in like this, right? You grab that thing. You can't get your hand out because the hole's too little. And homeboy over here saying, brother, just let it go. Just let it go. And this dude's like, no, nah, my banana's in here. I got a banana in here. Pretty soon it gets rotten. It stinks. Homeboy's like, you don't have a banana, dude. You got baggage. You got nothing in there. And God is like, let, let go of that thing. It's just a weight, man. You're walking around. You're hurting people because of it. Because you're holding on to it. Everybody's getting hit by it. You can't live, walk, move, do effectively because you're holding on to it. Let it go. I promise I'll give you something better than a banana. I promise I will fill your hands with something better than that bitterness and resentment. But you know what? It's scary to let that go. It was, I'm, I'm going to tell you, dude, like several months of last year, I went to bed weeping on my bed every night, like convulsing as my wife held me, as I was like dealing with letting go, walking through the process of forgiveness because it had become so a part of who I was. It was like this. This is like, I don't know life without this bitterness. I don't know life without this resentment. It was like a warm blanket filled with leprosy, just killing me softly. Like a vulture sitting on my head with his talons, just digging into my mind and my heart and my life and my relationships. And God's like, take off the vulture. And I was like, that's my hat. It's not a vulture, that's my hat because it becomes so comfortable. So it's scary to let it go because it's a part of who you are. But I'm telling you what, man, let that go. God will fill, the, fill that spot up with something so amazing. You think you're in control, but are you? Are you in control or are you under control? You're not in control. You're in, under control. And you got to let that go. I know that it's scary, man, but we got to let that go. There is freedom in Christ. Forgiveness always brings freedom. Through Christ, God already gave it to you. So now give it to somebody. Now give it to somebody. And don't leave this place today without taking a step in that direction. God, thank you that we are forgiven. Thank you that you have released us of our debt against you. You don't require anything of us before you did it. Thank you that you have set us free. We ask for faith and grace to do the same with those who have sinned against us. Help us, Lord. Help us. It's impossible without you.